we're going to continue in our study through Genesis, and we're going to be coming to a kind of a change, a transition in the book of Genesis when we get to chapter 12. In chapter 12, we are really being introduced to a man named Abraham. The title of the message this morning is The Call of Abraham, and man, I, I was wrestling with the title simply because there were so many things I wanted to call it. Um, I thought of putting down a subtitle, but then one wouldn't have been enough. I, I thought of, you know, the life of faith, the Christian walk of faith. No one is perfect. And my list could go on and on of things that, that I could have called this message as we look at the life of Abraham. I want to share for just a moment how I believe a walk of faith, and I believe the Bible is clear, is such a process. It's a process that lasts our entire life. And being called by the Lord to do anything for His glory can be a challenge. I'm going to share just a little bit. A number of you have heard my testimony, maybe in its entirety before, but I just want to share a little bit about when we felt the Lord was calling me into the pastoral position or ministry in general. Um, And I'm not trying to make any comparison to my call and the call of Abraham. If there is a comparison, mine's about this big compared to his. But a call is a call, and we all have a calling. We all have a general calling to be children of God, worship God, give Him glory. But we also all have a specific calling on our lives. And when and how that calling manifests is up to God. And believe it or not, it's up to us and our response to His leading in our calling. There was a time, late 80s, early 90s, and I know some of you can't even relate. You want to get out a history book and see if that time really existed. It did. I lived through it. Barely, but I did. In the late 80s, early 90s, Cindy and I were talking about, we were, we were on fire. We were into the Word. We hadn't been Christians that terribly long. It had been a few years, but still not real long time. And, you know, we were involved with a bunch of people on fire who were the founding fathers of this church, actually. And it was an exciting time. And we were feeling called to some sort of ministry. We just didn't know what. So Cindy and I were praying and talking about these things, and it was like, we don't know what we're supposed to do, we don't know when we're supposed to do it, but it was kind of like this, Lord, whatever you want us to do, as you open doors, we'll walk through them. At least I think we will. And that started a series of events that were really God-ordained. Um, removing barriers, overcoming internal fears and anxieties, and all of those things that could hinder you from just walking into your calling. That led to uh, a Russian mission trip. To uh, I think it was in 92. That was the first one, that, and Cindy and I both went on that mission trip. And it was an amazing time for us. It really built our faith. It, it helped us to see how hungry people were for the Word of God and how important the Word of God was to those that didn't have it, and how we took it for so much for granted. So I ended up making, I don't know, even remember for sure, five, six, seven more trips to Russia and just getting more involved. And we were kind of thinking, gee, maybe we're going to be missionaries. But in somewhere around 1990, 91, 92, Victory was without a pastor for two years. Pastor Ken Lundeen had felt called to a church in Nebraska, and we were without a pastor, looking for a pastor. And during that time, uh, the leadership, the board at that time, 
was kind of taking care of things. And uh, Dan Stewart, many of you know Dan, he's moved to Missouri with his family. But Dan Stewart and I kind of shared a lot of the practical responsibilities of the church. Dan, especially on the administrative side and myself more on the pastoral side. But others shared messages too. And it came about somewhere in that time frame, without a pastor, the board asked if uh, Cindy and I would pray about becoming the pastor. Oh, my. Is this an open door or is this the devil? Well, it took us a whole two weeks to come back to the board with a resounding, no, thank you. There were all kinds of fears, insecurities, fear of rejection, um, Fear of the community. I was born and raised here. Most of those years, I was not a Christian here. Um, So there's things I'd like to erase from everybody's memory, not just my own. I hadn't gone to seminary. First thing my mother asked me was, where are you going to go to seminary? You're going to go to the same university that Paul matriculated from. They didn't know that that meant, and I wasn't sure I did. So we said no. And we had a, a man that we, we called from, uh, who'd been in the mission field up in the Yukon Territory, and he was here for two years. Stan Potter was his name. Stan and his family moved here. And God used Stan. Stan came back from a pastor's retreat, a True Bridge pastor's retreat. And he said, Mike, I had vision. About three different times I had this vision that I'm supposed to anoint you to be pastor of Victory Church. And he told me this as we were driving into town from my house, which is less than a mile away. And he says, we'll tell the elders tonight. I said, no, we won't. We won't tell anybody anything for a while. Well, turns out after some prayer and trembling, some God moments in both my wife and my wife's life, we accepted that call. And actually, in May of 1995, I kind of started fulfilling the role, but then I was actually ordained and set in as the pastor of Victory Church on September 10th, 1995. With fear and trembling and insecurities raging and grace, amazing grace, the grace of God not only on myself and my wife and my family, but on the congregation. They had to experience me sort of learning how to be a pastor. It was a time of growth for me and in particular. And I'd like to tell you it was easy once we made the decision, but you know, it, it doesn't seem like 25 years ago to me. There's moments I can feel the same fears, the same insecurities still rise up 25 years later, knowing that at least I'm better equipped to know what to do with them, how to handle them. But the call of God on our life is something that, again, the enemy wants to steal, kill, and destroy in every one of our lives. And it was true of Abraham and the heroes of the Bible. You know, oftentimes as Christians, when we look at the heroes in the Bible, like Abraham and others, many, many others, we tend to think that they are men and women with absolutely no flaws and unwavering faith. And boy, if we do that, 
I believe we're falling into another snare of the enemy because if we do that, can you, how inadequate do we feel? We look at them and say, God, they're, they're, they're perfect. They must be. Look how God used them. And then we look inward and say, oh, boy, am I flawed. Am I insecure? Man, are there times when my faith wavers? There's no way that God can use me in a particular calling. But you know what? These heroes in the Bible, these men and women are heroes of the Bible. They're just like us. They had their insecurities and they had their flaws. We look through some of the heroes of the Bible. We can see major mistakes made. Even Abraham, as we begin to look at him today, even Abraham made some mistakes, had some flaws, had some weaknesses. And he was the man that God chose to be the leader, the founder of his people, his chosen people. I find encouragement when I see the flaws of some of these biblical heroes. It should remind us that God can use us, flaws and all. So we're going to be looking in Genesis, the last couple of verses of 11 and into chapter 12, a few about nine verses. And I'm not going to have them up on the screen, so I hope you have a Bible with you in some form, electronic or otherwise. I'm going to read these scriptures, and we'll refer back to them a number of times as we go through this. But I'll, I want to read, starting in Genesis chapter 11, verse 27. And at this part of chapter 11, it's kind of finishing the genealogies from Shem, the son of Noah, all the way to Abraham. And it starts out this way, with the name Terah. And Terah was the father of Abraham. It says this, Terah became the father of Abram, and he was called Abram until God changed his name. He was the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans, in the land of his birth. Abraham and Nahor both married. The name of Abraham's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarah was barren, and she had no children. Terah took his son Abraham, or Abram, and his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarah, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. Setting the stage, sort of, for chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Not to criticize any translations, but I believe there's a word left out of many translations in verse 1. You'll see it in the NIV, for those of you that have the NIV, and you'll see it in the King James. And it's a simple little word called, the word is had, H-A-D. And it reads this way, the Lord had said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham left, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, 
all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. And then Abraham set out and continued toward the Negev, toward toward Egypt is where he ended up going. Moses gives us this overview, if you would, of the calling and travel of Abraham from Ur to Haran to the Canaan to Egypt. But he doesn't give us all the details. And if you just read that, you can kind of come to what I believe is the wrong conclusion. Something as basic as, where was he living when he received this call? You could even read what Moses said and think, gee, maybe he called uh, Terah, his father, because it says Terah took Abraham and Lot and Sarah. You need to look at other places in the Scripture because it's made perfectly clear to us, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. I'm going to read uh, what Stephen said when Stephen was standing before the religious leaders and giving his defense of the faith. In Acts chapter 7, verses 2 through 4, Stephen is responding to them, and it says this. To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, the city of Ur is in southern Mesopotamia. He said, leave your country and your people. God said, and go to the land that I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living, Canaan, Israel. When we look at this, we see a couple of things made clear from Stephen. Abram living in Ur at the time, received his call while there. The call was directly to him, not to his father. And the Lord revealed himself to him, which was not uncommon in that time. What that exactly means, I'm not sure. But in Joshua chapter 24, we see Joshua saying, Thus saith the Lord, and again he refers to Abraham. In Joshua 24, verse 2, it says to this, Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. The call of God came to Abraham while he was living in Ur. And Ur was a very modern city for the day. We'll look at a map a little later, but Ur was located just above the Persian Sea. It was a wealthy city. It was a well-developed city. It was uh, 
developed in technology, science, skilled craftsmen. It was a large city. But it was also a very pagan city. A polytheistic city, meaning they worshipped other gods. From arch, arch, uh, archaeological discoveries and history, some, some say that there's hundreds if not thousands of other gods that they worshipped in the city of Ur. And notice what Joshua said when he was speaking for the Lord. He said, where your father, Abraham's father, Terah, when he lived on the other side of the river, the Tigris-Euphrates, the Euphrates River, when he lived over there, he worshipped other gods. Think about that for a moment. The man that God is calling to be the father of a nation, the father of his chosen people, was raised in a home that worshipped other gods. That kind of removes any excuse for us disqualifying ourselves from serving God because of family, because of the way we were raised, where we were born. It doesn't tell us if Abraham worshipped other gods or not. I wish it did. But he was raised in that kind of family. And yet he was called by God. He's called to leave, and this, I think, is significant. There's a lesson for us here as Christians. Hang on to things lightly, loosely, if we want to be obedient and respond to the call of God in our life. Abraham was living in the city of Ur, a big city, a contemporary city of the day, with all the comforts that they would have available to him in that time. There was plenty of wealth, and we see that Terah and then again Abraham, they had a lot of belongings, they had a lot of people, that when they moved, it was not just three, four, five people getting on a, a camel and driving away. It was a caravan. And he's called to leave the comfort of this city, the situation that he was living in, and he was supposed to come to a land that God wasn't going to show him yet, wasn't going to tell him about yet, and he was going to live in a tent and be a nomad basically for the rest of his life. Thank you, Lord, for calling me. Amazing. The call. The God. So when we focus on a few flaws in, in Abraham's life, this is a great man. Came a godly man. In Genesis 12, verse 1, God told Abraham, and I think this is interesting, he told him first what he's got to leave behind. I mean, imagine you're in prayer and God speaks to you. And you hear his voice. Not audible necessarily, but you hear his voice and he's speaking to your heart and he's telling you, you got to leave where you're living. You got to leave the country. You got to leave all your people, all your relatives, all the people you know. You got to leave them all. Oh yeah, and you got to leave your family. You got to leave your household. Okay, that's tough enough, but as long as what I'm going to is worth it, no problem, God. So what, are you, what am I getting in return for laying all that apart? Um, you're going to go to a land. I'm just not going to tell you where it is or anything about it. And you're going to have to travel to get there. And the route he took, by some estimations, would have probably been somewhere over 1,500 miles to get there. And yet, he would obey. He was going to do... God was doing something totally new 
He was going to create a new people and a new nation, and he wanted to leave everything else behind. Now, I'm not saying when you and I respond to the call of God in our life, we've got to leave everything else behind. In his grace and his mercy, that doesn't usually happen. But it might. And you have to let go of something. And that can be really difficult in responding in obedience to God's call. Cindy and I had just built our little log cabin on the other side of the lake. Not very big, but we sure loved it. I had a pretty good job. One I really, really loved. I was working for Relco. I'd been working them for over 12 years. I was their national sales manager, and I loved doing the work. We're going to lose our house? We're going to change my job? Just so John and Brian know, I was underpaid then, but it was way more than I was going to make. <laughs> way more than I was going to make as a pastor of Victory Church at that time. All of these things. Just think what Abraham had to face. What must have been going through his mind when he's getting called by God? A new nation. God just told him in, in Hebrews the, chapter 11, of Hebrews, the, the, the chapter we call that the Hall of Faith, kind of, the, the, the fathers of the faith, and the daughters of the faith, the, the, the amazing heroes. It just it says this about Abraham. He went out not knowing where he was going. Great. Abraham's faith wasn't in the plan. It was in a person, God. We need to get that firmly in our mind and in our heart when God calls us to whatever it is he calls us to. You know, if responding to our calling takes us from here to this pinnacle mountaintop experience, that would be sweet. But it doesn't work that way. There's going to be some mountaintops along the way, but there's going to be a lot of deep valleys along the way too. And time seems to mean almost nothing to God. It may not happen when and how we want at all. Our faith cannot be in the plan because most of the time we don't even know what the plan is. It'd be nice to have an idea, but sometimes we don't, we don't know. We don't know the details. If you just tell me, Lord, I'll go. Tell me what the plan is, I'll go. So what is our faith becoming? It's becoming in the plan. Our faith needs to remain in the person of God. It's the only way that it will work, and we'll be able to fulfill God's call on our life. I'm going to back up for just a moment into chapter 11 because there's an event there that was of historical significance. Most of us heard about it in Sunday school or if we went to Sunday school. The Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel. And the reason I want to just look back at it is because it is significant, but also we need to, I think, see a comparison between God's command and the response of the people there and the command and the call of Abraham and his response. They're almost exactly the opposite. At Babel, men chose to completely disregard God's command, and he attempted to gain a reputation for himself and gain security through a city. Um, Some people would historically, the archaeologists would tell us, this was the beginning of urbanization. 
In other words, this is the beginning of the people living in a big city at your, at, at just north of your. There's disagreement on where it's exactly located. There was like seven or eight cities, villages called Babel in Babylonia, Mesopotamia. Archaeological digs seem to indicate an ancient city called Yorak, just, again, north of the Persian Gulf, north of Ur, and in the, a plain that was called Shinar. We see that in the Scriptures. In Genesis 11, verse 4, it reads this way. And this is the people talking about what we should do. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to heavens so that we make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. I mean, just reading that verse, you can say, oh my gosh, what were these people thinking? We're going to violate everything God has spoken to Noah's kids and all the relatives since. The command given to Noah and his sons was this, if you remember back in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in numbers, and then fill the earth. The people at Babel are saying, let's build a city, build a tower to heaven, make a name for ourselves because we are amazing people, and that way we don't have to be scattered around the earth. doesn't get more contrary to God's command and call. So in Genesis 11, as you continue to read it, in, in verse 1, it tells us that the whole earth is speaking the same language, using the same words. And because of that, there's this amazing unity and ability to come together and accomplish things. In verse 2, it says that they found a plain in Shinar. Now, don't, don't get this wrong. Not all the people that were alive at that time were in that plain. But a lot of them were gathering there. Many of them were gathering there. And they were gathering there, and the plain, this plain of Shinar is located... Well, I think I have a map. doesn't show you a lot. But you see Ur down here, just off to the right would be the Persian Sea. Erech, where the Tower of Babel was thought to be. And notice those two major rivers, or the Tigris and Euphrates River. And between them, above that red dot, and that red dot would be in this plain of Shinar this very fertile, wonderful place. So they were all gathering there and they'd say, you know what, let's build a city. It'd be safer if we're all in a city. Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's build a tower that reaches to the heavens. That way we won't ever have to be scattered about. And God is saying, I don't think this is a good idea. He let evil go so far before the flood that it took the flood. He decided to prevent the evil from going further right now by intervening again, and this is where he confused the languages. In verses 7 and 8, it says, God confused the language, that they would not understand one another's speech. And then when we read those two verses, you'll read these words, the Lord spreads them over the face of the earth. And it's interesting, Cindy and I were just watching last night on on, uh, a YouTube channel, a video on the Tower of Babel. And all the archaeological evidence showing the way the people then were dispersed in every direction from there. And they, 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 they've researched, they've made the digs, they find all of the architectural discoveries, the finds, the potteries, etc., scattered to the rest of the world. An overwhelming amount of evidence. God's 
intervention. And then after this, it goes into chapter 11 if you're reading it. And again, I encourage you not to skip over the genealogies. But once again, you'll see here there is again 10 generations from Shem to Abraham, just as there were 10 from Adam to Noah and Shem. And this time the years are much shorter. It looks like when you add them up, it's only 390 years from the time of Noah's son Shem to the birth, approximately, to the birth of Abraham. We don't know exactly the birth order, so we can't say exactly how old um, Abraham was or how many years it was. As I said earlier, we're going to look at his response to the call in a moment, but irregardless of things that maybe could have done, been done better. He was a good man. He was a great man. He was a godly man. It's interesting and amazing, really, that nearly one quarter, one-fourth of the whole book of Genesis is about Abraham and his family. Amazing. When you read in chapter 11 of Hebrews about all these amazing, amazing people, Abraham gets more ink than anybody else. It's amazing. Some of you are probably aware of this. Some of you may be surprised, but Abraham in the Christian religion is a very important figure, obviously. In the Jewish religion, he is a very important figure, Father Abraham. You may not all know that in the Muslim religion, he's only superseded in importance to them by Muhammad. Abraham is referenced in their Quran like 168 or 178 times. I forget the exact number. Isaac, the godly line, his son. Ishmael, a son by the maid Hagar, the Muslim nations of the earth. It goes back that far to the disagreements. But that's how important Abraham is to millions of people on this planet. Not only that, when we look into the New Testament, James says these words about Abraham. Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the Scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. Abraham was saved by faith. He believed in God. Evidence of his faith is the actions that he took because of his faith. Paul also writes about him in a couple of different spots. I want to mention one in Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. He says, Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through him. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And in Romans 4, he wrote these words, Paul did. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham is a great man, a godly man. 
He was saved by faith, by believing. The covenant with Abraham starts in verse 1 of chapter 12, sort of. It's really just kind of a, a, an overview again of the covenant. The covenant is more clearly explained and defined in chapter 15, I believe it's verse 8, and then most of chapter 17. But here we get the major promises that God makes to Abraham. First one of the three promises is the land. He says, I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to show you land, and, and I'm going to give it to, actually, your ancestors. The land never belonged to Abraham in his lifetime. That seems to put a little damper on the call, doesn't it? In fact, when Abraham's wife, Sarah, finally died, he had to buy some land in Canaan to bury his wife. And ultimately, he was buried in that same piece of land. This land that God promised him never came to him. It came to his seed. Actually, when Joshua led God's people into the promised land of Canaan. The second thing he was promised is a great nation would come from Abraham, from Abraham's seed. And this is just a theoretical or hypothetical question, I guess. What's the blessing of that promise? That you will be a great nation or that it's going to come from your seed? It's going to be in your family. Is the becoming a great nation much more of a blessing than the fact that Abraham at his age and at Sarah's ripe old age, they're going to have a family. They're going to have children. God's eyes, he talks more about the blessings of children in the Scripture than he ever does about making a great nation. In Psalms 127, he says, Sons are a heritage from the Lord. Children are a reward from Him. Arrows, like arrows in the hands of a warrior. Sons born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies at the gate. The promise of children for Abraham took almost as much faith, maybe more, than it did of becoming a great nation. As you read the story, you realize just how old and barren Sarah was. And then there was the promise of blessing, the third thing. And the promise of blessing was a blessing for Abraham, but it was also a blessing through Abraham. It's interesting, and I don't want to go down this road very far, but you know, it says that the people that bless you, I'm going to bless. And I think of, for example, Joseph in Egypt with Pharaoh. Pharaoh blesses Joseph, and Joseph becomes the second most powerful man in all of Egypt, and Egypt is blessed. Then I think of Moses, because that verse goes on and says, those who curse you, I will curse. Moses goes to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, forget you. I want nothing to do with you, nor your God. And God cursed Egypt. I think it's a good idea to stay friends with Israel personally. Abraham's compliance with the command. And I'm going to go through this kind of quickly, but I think it's important for me and you to be encouraged by the way it really played out because he wasn't perfect. 
Many, many, many messages have been given titled something like this. When God calls you, don't stop in Haran. Meaning you didn't fulfill the call. You didn't go where you were supposed to go. Heroes in the Bible aren't perfect. Neither was Abraham. They're women and men just like us. Flaws and doubts, fears. People that we can relate to. When you think about If I asked you, which one of the disciples do you most relate to? How many of you would say something besides Peter? Why do we relate to Peter? Because he was a mess up. He was always putting his foot in his mouth. He even denied Christ three times, for goodness sakes. I like Peter. Why? I can relate to Peter. It's easy to relate to him. I can relate to Moses. Arguing with God, making excuses. God, I have no way. Somebody else has got to go. I can't even speak. I can relate to Moses and his insecurities. David, man, a, a man after God's own heart. Wouldn't you like God to say that about you? Wait a minute. This is the guy who had an adulterous affair, committed murder, basically. And he's a man after God's own heart. I like David gives me hope. Paul, go on and on with this list. Paul, he's he's torturing, tormenting, arresting, and killing Christians. Then he decides, God decides, I think I'll have him write most of the New Testament. Amazing stuff. Whatever it is, don't let lies and deceptions of the devil discourage you when God calls you. And patience. He didn't even get to see the land. He got to see the land. He never got to own the land, never got to live in the land. Abraham's call was go forth from your country, your relatives, and your father's house. He didn't do so well with all of those things right off the bat. He left with his father, and they went to Haran. And we don't know how long they stayed there. We know his, his dad died there at 205 years of age. We know that Abraham spent enough time in Ur because before they ever left Ur, he was married to Sarah. So I don't know how long he was in Ur, Ur, but how long it was when he went to Haran and stayed there. But God didn't call him to go to Haran and stop for a while. A long while. He told him to go to Canaan. Leave your country. Hmm. Haran seems to still be in real close to northern Mesopotamia. Leave your country, leave your family, leave your household. He didn't leave his household till his dad died. He eventually went to Canaan. He eventually demonstrated the faith, and his faith continued to grow. But I think, like all of us, his faith grew in steps, his process, just like ours. Why he didn't go directly, we don't know for sure. Why did they stop in Haran? Well, some people think because in Haran, the primary god that was worshipped was the moon god, which was one of the primary gods worshipped in Ur. And his dad maybe wanted to stay there. We don't know for sure. Acts chapter 7, verse 4, I already read, but I'm going to read it again. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. It took the death of his father and God sending him on. And then he went 
to Canaan. He built an altar near Shechem. He built an altar near Bethel. And there's a whole lot of things that are really interesting because it was inhabited by the Canaanites. They were ungodly people. It's almost as left as he's, he's putting down standing stones by building an altar and worshiping God, building an altar and worshiping God. But where did he go? He continued on to Egypt because there was a famine. Was that God's will or just self-preservation? The Bible doesn't tell us. And then he finally gets back in to Canaan. He eventually did obey, but there were considerable steps of preparation that appear to be really orchestrated by God. So I'm going to close with six things that I think we can learn from Abraham that show the characteristics of a life of faith, and I'm going to do it real quick, and they're going to be on the screen. There they are. First three. A life of faith begins with an initiative of God. God does the calling. How were you saved? How did you get led to the Lord? Whose idea was it? Wake up one morning and say, I think I'm going to get led to the Lord. I just got to find somebody to lead me. Or did God initiate it, draw you, woo you by his spirit, bring people across your paths, bring people to speak into your life? God's initiative. God continues to work in the process of sanctification. He continues to prepare us. It's an ongoing life going, ongoing life uh, through your whole life. Preparing us, this process of sanctification, setting us apart for our calling. And the Christian's walk is a pilgrimage. You know, the Bible tells us that we're just sojourners. We're just travelers through this life. Earth is not our home. Our home is in heaven. He told Abraham what he was going to have to let go of. Hold it loosely. Your home's not here. He lived as a nomad the rest of his life in a tent, fulfilling the call of God on his life. Number four, next slide, the Christian walk must be grounded and rooted in the Word of God. That's where we have to stand and stay in the Word of God. His calling on his life, what the Word of God tells us, the Word of God teaches, we need to be grounded and rooted in the Word of God. The Word of God never changes. Never changes. And it's truth. Absolute truth. Number five, the Christian walk is doing what God has told us to do and then believing, having faith that He's leading us as we're doing it. I don't know if Cindy and I missed God that first time around or not when the board asked us to become pastor. I do know there was all kinds of fear and trembling, but it may not have been God's timing. And personally, I'm going to go with it wasn't God's timing. Makes me feel better. But irregardless, it was more than two years later. And the last one, a Christian walk is the process of growth in grace. The walk of our Walking out our faith, walking out our calling. It is a work of grace. It's a process. It's painful at times. We can become so impatient. But God has a calling on every life. And I think there's so much we can learn from Abraham's calling and from the other heroes of the Bible who weren't perfect, didn't come from perfect families. Yet God has a plan and purpose for our life. Let's close in prayer. 
Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the knowledge that you have a plan and purpose for our life and that none of us were created by accident. None of us are mistakes. Father, that we all have a plan and a destiny in Jesus. Father, I'm so thankful that you don't disqualify us because of our mistakes or our pasts. But God, that you are a God of many, many second, third, fourth chances. God, and I pray you would help each one of us to respond in obedience, open ourselves up to receive the grace that you have for us. Father, that we might become more like Christ every day as the Holy Spirit continues to do a work in our lives. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.